Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of In the Barn. I'm Robin. And I'm Kelsey. And in today's episode, we are going to be discussing how best to handle hot weather. Exactly how hot is too hot to ride? What's the best way to cool your horse down? And why are Arabians better at cooling down than other breeds? Stick around and we'll share the answers. Episode, we're going to be discussing heat because I don't know if you guys have noticed it's summer <laughs> and where I live in the Pacific Northwest we just suffered through like a horrible heat wave. Uh, we, temperatures got up to like 106 at my house which is unheard of. Like usually we have one day that's in the 90s but this time we had like multiple days that were above 100 and like multiple days in the high 90s and it was it was hot. I actually bought fans for my horses because like that's not something living in the Pacific Northwest we've ever had to do for our horses before unless we were traveling to like horse shows. Sometimes then you need fans. But no, you guys got cooked. Yeah, we were we were cooked and it was a mix like sometimes it was really humid and other times it was like a dry heat. And so the dry heat was great. Love a good dry heat. The humidity was a little bit miserable. <laughs> um, and I was definitely like super cranky. I had to bring horses. So I brought my horse that lives down the road in a big pasture. I brought him and his pasture buddy, who's not my horse, it's someone else's horse, to my house because I was like, I don't want them just sitting out in the pasture baking. Like they have shelter, but I don't think the shelter on its own <laughs> when it's 106 degrees is very useful. No, it wouldn't have been enough for them. I don't think it would have been enough. And especially like I live up a little bit in elevation compared to town and the pasture is like right outside of town. And so it's just like it's just hotter down there regardless of town is always like you live like 10 to 15 minutes outside of town. And it's always at least especially on hot summer days, it'll be like five degrees hotter there or upwards of like 10 degrees hotter in town. Like it is that much of a difference. So bringing them home was quite the relief for them. <laughs> Even though I'm sure they were both miserable. Like the one horse just stood in front of the fan the entire time. Like he did not move at all. Aww. And I like stood in front of the fan at one point when it was like 106. And I was like, this feels like a heater. Like this does not feel like cooling air at all. This is a heater. But just being able to keep airflow and air moving was able to help keep him a lot cooler and help him like keep allowing him to sweat and the sweat to dry and like to keep him cooler that way but it was it was miserable and I know a lot of people live in areas like Texas and North Carolina that are just miserable year-round so this is like a common question people have is like how hot is too hot how do I know like how do I manage my horse I think there's a lot of myths out there that we're hoping to bust today about how to take care of your horse in heat I'll say before we get any further though especially with the heat wave that happened in the northwest and like looking at the horses traveling over to Tokyo and stuff for the summer or not for the summer but for like for the Olympics there is a big difference between living in that climate consistently and then getting a little bit spike in the heat to like where you were in the Northwest where you get like a spike of a 90 degree day, but instead you guys had like a spike of a 106 degree day. Like that is quite the outlier that like your horses were so not used to that you really had to go the extra mile to keep them cool and comfortable because they were just baking. Absolutely. And there was really no way to like acclimate to it because it was June. Yeah. <laughs> Like, in, we call it, where I'm from, January. It's a mix between June and January. So it's typically going to have some sunny days and then also, like, a lot of rain and cold days. So to have days that 
that were in the hundreds in June was just not something anyone was ready for. Like the beginning of the month was cold and wet and miserable. Like it was wet and rainy and cold and miserable the beginning of the month. And then the end of the month was 100 degrees. So there was no way to really acclimate to it or really get prepared. It just happened kind of quickly. And they're saying that this is going to become more normal, like that we'll have more of these spikes, not this summer, but like as we go through the years, this is something to expect more of. Flies are going to be dropping everywhere. Everyone's just going to be heat catting. Almost. Flies and fleas are both really bad this year. Like really bad. Ooh. Yeah. The the black flies around my ponies, I took after Australia, where Australia has waged a few wars on animals and lost. I, yeah, with- I was going to say, I don't think they're winning. No, they're not. They like what? They had the was it emus or ostriches or something and then they also like have a war going on with mice right now losing mm-hmm. the mice one horribly mm-hmm. that mice one is so disgusting oh oh i know i get the chills just thinking about it but i declared a war on the black flies in my pasture and i have severely lost this battle i haven't lost the war quite yet but i have lost at least three battles and they just keep coming back stronger than ever I'm sorry yeah no the Flies are are miserable. Everything, I mean, the flies at my house, I do use fly predators. I do think they work. So I think they're not as bad as they could be. But yeah, the flies are definitely worse this year than previous years. So let's kick off this episode. And the first thing I want to talk about with this episode is what is thermoneutral? What is like thermoneutral temperature, thermoneutral zone, and what does this mean specifically for horses? So a thermoneutral zone or thermoneutral temperature is basically the temperature that a horse can or a human can be at where they do not have to exert any energy to cool themselves or to heat themselves. So they don't have to fluff their hair or go find shelter or start to sweat. So thermoneutral is the range of temperatures at which an animal or a horse is like perfectly comfortable at. In the 80s, a lot of our heat research just was looking at what are the extremes a horse can survive at. And so in 1997, there was a study done called Thermoneutral Zone in Critical Temperatures of Horses. And it was done by Karen Morgan, um, who was a student in Switzerland. And it wasn't really an experiment more. It was a looking at the research that had previously been done in the 80s. And from that, extrapolating what was that thermoneutral zone. So in her uh, literature review, what she found was that the thermoneutral zone for horses appeared to be between 5 and 25 degrees Celsius or 41 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. So at that range, 41 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit, a horse is comfortable. They don't need to exert any additional energy to cool themselves, heat themselves that's their preferred range it doesn't mean that below 40 they need you know tons of blankets because they're cold it means that they're going to just start making adjustments whether that's you know fluffing their coat up so that they can stay warmer or finding shelter or eating more they're going to make those adjustments not necessarily that they're uncomfortable and like not going to survive outside (laughs) and same with like there's 77 like they're not going to start profusely sweating and having heat stroke if it's above 77 that's just a horse's preferred range where they're comfortable. This was confirmed in 2015 by another study that looked at behavior of horses on pasture in relation to weather and shelter, a field study in temperature climate. So this was a study that looked at 426 domestic horses that lived in 166 different pasture situations. And what they were just monitoring was depending on the temperature, when did a horse need to go into the shelter? When did they decide to use that shelter? And so horses typically would go into the shelter if it was below low 7 degrees Celsius or 44 degrees Fahrenheit or when it was above 25 degrees Celsius or 77 degrees Fahrenheit. So what this they determined was that 
by the horse going into the shelter, that was usually an indication that the shelter was a bit warmer than it was outside or a bit cooler, depending on if it was hot or cold, right? The opposite of whatever the outside temperature was. And that at that range, that 44 to 77 was when a horse needed to make an adjustment and go into shelter. So that's just where I wanted to start this. If we know where horses are most comfortable, they're in the 40s to 70s. Now we can start to talk about where they're a little bit uncomfortable. So for this episode, we're going to be relying heavily on the FEI's published data. So there is a document that I think we both looked at uh, called Optimizing Performance in a Challenging Climate. This was published uh, by the FEI. It was presented by three different vets, David Marlin, Martha Mischeff, and Peter Whitehead. They presented this at the FEI Sports Forum in March 2018. The reason we have decided to rely on the FEI document is because one, there is a lot of misinformation out there on the internet. It is easy to Google what everyone has a different opinion on how to manage heat, how to tell if it's hot. There is a lot of uh, organizations, Pony Club in particular, that has adopted the wrong standards for managing heat. There are a lot of misinformation and myths when it comes to hosing and cooling your horses off. This document that was published by the FEI, the FEI benefits greatly from having the correct information out there. While the FEI sure cares about animal welfare, they also care about the, their public, publicity. <laughs> they want to make sure that they aren't having horses die at these large competitions at the Olympics. They want to make sure that their horses are starting the Olympic competition and finishing it. They benefit greatly from getting this information correctly. They also sunk a ton of money into getting this information and to getting these studies done. So after the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, which I talked about this in a previous episode, I think. So the 1992 Barcelona Olympics was really hot and really dry. And that climate took a huge tax on the horses. So it, they ended up running the horses like middle of the day. The horses were coming in after cross country, specifically after the long format. So remember long formats so of roads and tracks and steeplechase and then uh, the cross country course. They were coming in showing signs of heat stress and heat illness. Thankfully, nothing bad happened. The horses, there was no tragic injuries or illnesses as a result, but that took a lot of effort from the athletes, the grooms, the team managers, the vets to get these horses to recover after cross country. And at that point, the FEI realized they had a problem that we cannot continue to compete like this without having a better understanding of how climate affects the horses. Like I said, in the 80s, they were mostly looking at the extremes. They weren't looking at what about a horse competing? What is a good range for a horse to compete in? Following this, the FEI launched a massive um, scientific and veterinary like welfare initiative in order to get information and research done in preparation for the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games. Just before the 1996 Olympic Games, a book titled On to Atlanta 96 was written by L.B. Jeffcott and Andrew F. Clark. You can still find this online and buy it. It's like $15. It's not that expensive. But it basically takes all... Did you buy it? I almost did. I almost did. Like you, I, it's like bookmarked. <laughs> I might go and buy it because there's not a ton of copies left out there because uh, this is like a pamphlet. It's a very specific, right? It's for those people who are going to the Olympics. This book was yeah. sold and mass produced. Like the idea was to get it to every groom, every team, every rider needed to have a copy of this book. And it summarized the 50 different scientific papers that had been conducted between 92 and 96. So all of those are put and published into this book. And so the point of this 2018 document that we're referencing is that since that time, 
that book was published, there have been a lot of myths and many rumors concerning how to manage horses in heat. And so the FEI is trying to get people to go back to that 96 research. There hasn't been a ton of heat research. If you look at like Google Scholar, most of that research is from the 90s and the early 2000s. There's not a ton that has happened since then. Yeah. And I just wonder if that's because people feel the research has been done. Like we've got our answer. We know how to manage it. We know what we need to do. Just do it. The first myth and misconception that I want to clarify is which temperature index should you be using? So you know what a temperature index is? I do. I do. I think I do. I could be completely wrong. So here we go isn't it like you have your temperature that it is outside and then you have your temperature that like what it feels like and that's your heat index yeah so basically it is a feels like temperature but it's gonna be combining several factors about the temperature and what the environment and climate is that day there's five factors that we look at um and it's gonna combine some of those all of those a couple of those in order to determine how comfortable and how safe it is to be competing exercising working whatever outside okay so those five factors that are most commonly looked at are the shade temperature basically how hot or how cool is it in the shade is it comfortable in the shade the second is the amount of moisture in the air, which is referred to as relative humidity. So this is the amount of moisture and it is what affects your ability to sweat. So this is why when you're in humid climates, it always feels way worse than when it's dry. That's why we hate a humid heat, but we don't mind a dry heat. It's because when there's moisture in the air, doing that exchange of getting the sweat and moisture off the body into the air is really challenging if the air is already saturated. Other things is the strength of the sun. So the sun's ability to heat up the like earth directly. So this is why we might feel when there's cloud cover, it's not as warm and then the sun gets exposed and it's suddenly hot again. I don't know if you've ever been outside on those days where like the sun gets clouded out and you're like, oh my gosh, it's cold. And then the clouds move and the sun's warm again. So this is the strength of the sun and its ability to like heat you up directly in the solar radiation. You also have the reflection of the radiation off the ground. So this is why being in town on asphalt and dark surfaces often feels a lot hotter than it is outside on grass or on a lighter colored surface. That ability to reflect the heat back has a huge impact. So grass absorbs a lot more of that radiation and reflects a lot less back than say a dark arena or a road surface. You also have wind speed. Yeah. So wind speed, obviously that's pretty like easy to tell. That's how fast the air is moving and that helps with evaporation of sweat. The most common temperature index that we think of is the heat index. So that is taking the temperature outside, just the ambient temperature, the air temp, and adding humidity to it. And you're gonna get a number that tells you a range of how safe it is. And this is the one that we probably are most familiar with. It's the one that you're gonna see most of the time, if you Google like how hot is too hot to ride your horse, you're going to see some version of the heat index that is like highlighted and tells you what that safe range is. Typically, we've been told anything under 120 is safe. Between 120 and 150, you should use caution and anything over 150, don't ride. As someone from North Carolina, you're probably going, whoa. Holy crap. <laughs> Uh, well, so it's your temperature plus humidity. So think about if you've Whoa, got 70 they are degrees outside it. and 70% humidity, you're at 140. So you should use caution. Oh, okay. For some reason, I was taking that as like temperature, temperature. Like if no, it's no, 140 no, no, no. Yeah. degrees outside, you should use caution when you're riding. And I was like, I don't think you should be riding at all. <laughs> I think we like stumbled across not riding a few mile markers ago. No, so it's the temperature outside plus the humidity. So I think like right now it's 63 at my house plus 72% humidity. So uh, if I did math, that's like 100 and 
35. Ooh, what do you think it is at my house? I don't know. Get a calculator. What's 88 plus 60? It's 140. You should use, if you're going to ride, you should use extreme caution. Yeah, oh, you're okay, almost so I can't to ride 148. Right now. So you're almost to the don't ride. And I'm at 130 something right now. It is perfect riding condition, perfect weather. And that's the point. This heat index is not a good measurement. So part of the research they determined was that this should never be used for managing horses in hot or humid conditions. Do not use the heat index to rely on when to ride your horse or not ride your horse. It is inaccurate. It is a gorgeous, beautiful day for riding, but according to the heat index, I should use extreme caution. That doesn't make any sense to me. What they found was that the heat index would actually predict the worst times to run the competition versus the index that we'll talk about in a second that they actually chose. So it was predicting the worst time of the day to ride. There's a couple reasons for this. It is taken in the shade, so it is a shade temperature, and it is how comfortable is it in the shade for non-exercising people. It has nothing to do with how much you're exercising, or if you're an animal, it is for people in the shade who are sitting and not exercising. And it is extremely unreliable. And that's part of it is because it's just measuring two indexes. There's just two of those factors. So that's one we're all really familiar with and you can stop using it right now. <laughs> no, you don't need to rely on it, but I think this is the one Pony Club uses. This is the one I was most familiar with. The second one that we've all gotten a little bit more familiar with, but has never really been used or adopted in the horse world is real feel. So real fuel is a uh, temperature that is measured exclusively by AccuWeather. Uh, so that's the real fuel if you look into your iPhone temperature. And it is a commercial forecasting company. That's who AccuWeather is. They have a patent for this equation. It is supposedly this equation takes into consideration humidity, cloud cover, wind, sun intensity, and angle of sun. It is a kind of accurate. It seems pretty close to what we actually use for horses. It is a per... per proprietary equation. So it's a secret exactly what calculations they're using. And it is a little bit difficult because one of the measurements they are using isn't something anyone, the National Weather Service takes or like, so some of the information they're using is hard to come by. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about the wet bulb global index. What has been adopted as the standard, the only one that you can use for horse events is wet bulb global index temperature index well, that's a mouthful i don't know exactly actually what the index number three is <laughs> i think that is just the one fei has specifically tweaked the wet bulb global index is a real thing it was not invented for the olympics it is something that measures the heat stress in direct sunlight it takes into account temperature humidity wind speed sun angle cloud cover which is solar radiation and right it's different than the heat index because it measures so many different things. It's not just temperature and humidity in the shade. It has been adopted by the military um, and by OSHA and many other nations for their athletic teams. So it is widely accepted that this is the heat index that you should be looking at. Something weird though I will point out, so basically what it is, the equation that we use as FEI and horse riders is we take the, so 0.7 times the wet bulb temperature, which that 0.7 is just how much, how big of a factor that temperature is. So you take 0.7 times the wet bulb temperature. Don't worry, I'll explain this all in a second. Good, because you lost me. <laughs> plus 0.3 times the black globe temperature, and that gives us our index. 
This is the one that's used for indoor events. For some reason, we've decided to use the one for indoor events, which does not take into consideration solar radiation or when solar radiation isn't such a big impact. I don't understand why this has to do with the fact that we're competing on grass most of the time. I don't know why. Solar radiation is also just being out in the direct sunlight. So that one is interesting to me that we've decided to use the indoor one and not the outdoor one. But this is what is being used and they're still tweaking the equation for the Olympics. So what is the wet bulb global, wet bulb globe temperature? How is it conducted? So I'm sorry guys, this is a lot of information. If you need to, uh, Hank Green on TikTok <laughs> does actually break down what this is. So if you need a nice TikTok, go on over, find Hank Green's page. He walks you through what some of this stuff is. So wet bulb temperature is determination of what temperature uh, sweat can be evaporated at. So basically you take a mercury thermometer, you wrap a wet paper towel or a wet cloth around it. And when that cloth dries, that temperature will tell you what like what the comfort temperature is for being able to evaporate sweat. So the idea being if it gets lower, that means there's more water on that cloth. And that means a lower temperature is what sweat is being evaporated at. So if it's hotter out, right? So if the temperature it's evaporated at is 70, but it's 80 degrees outside, it means there's a hard time evaporating that sweat off the body. Versus if it's 80 degrees outside, it's really dry, that cloth dries almost immediately, you're likely evaporating at the same rate of the outdoor temperature. It's just how quickly can that cloth dry and how quickly can that sweat dry on the body. So that's what wet bulb temperature is. The other one, I honestly do not understand black globe temperature. I am really sorry, guys. This one is a really weird one. So basically what it's measuring is solar radiation and how quickly or what is that temperature difference between the temperature, the air temperature, and the thermometer that is inside a copper ball that has been painted black matte. And the difference is between that air temperature and the thermometer inside of it. So it has to do with that radiation, the sun being the sun radiation being reflected back into the air and heating up the air versus that thermometer that's inside the black ball bulb is not getting that radiation. That's all I can figure out. I'm really sorry, guys. Like that's as much as I understood about the wet about the black globe. So basically you add these two things together and that tells you what your index is. You don't have, there's a bunch of equations to figure this out. There's also devices that cost about $160 that will do this for you. This is a flag colored system. Uh, if we're looking at humans, we're looking at white through black flags. So white, green, yellow, and red and black tell you how safe it is to be outside competing and working. So it's been determined at the FEI, anything below 28 degrees Celsius, or uh, that's about like 70 to 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Everything's fine, you're good. And again, when I say Fahrenheit Celsius, that's the index temperature. So this is an index that gives you a single number um, and it's gonna look like a temperature. It's kind of like, it's a feels like temperature. It's not the heat index, which is adding things together and it's gonna be a really big number. So anything um, above 32 Celsius or, sorry, looking at my conversion, 88 on the wet bulb um, index is going to be considered hazardous and things need to, the event needs to make, like change the competition. The FEI has some really vague standards about like less than 28, there's no changes, 28 to 30, there are some precautions to reduce, reduce heat load. 30 to 32 is additional precautions that are um, to help horses not overheat. So basically additional changes are made to the cooling, um, cooling out after competition. 32 um, and above, there's gonna either be the event's gonna have to be drastically changed, canceled, uh, go at a different time, delays, things like that. 
for the 2020 Olympics or the 2021 Olympics, it's predicted that it's going to be on the globe at about or on the index at about a 30. So that means it's going to be a red flag uh, and that it's going to be that there's going to need to be additional precautions that are being taken to limit horses from overheating. So I don't know if that's what those necessarily would be when it comes to venting. That's their plan is to educate. It's to provide cooling facilities. It's to schedule to avoid the most thermally stressful time of the day. You have to have a contingency plan for how to deal with extreme conditions. There's no change to dressage and jumping, though. Um, it's just to like the cross country reduction of the cross country course. We may see the course get shorter um, throughout the day or they may just decide in the morning because they have to make decisions real time as they're going um, and then enhanced veterinarian monitoring. So if you are curious, how do I, I don't know how to do math. This all sounds really hard. I don't have the fancy device. There is a really easy website you can go to that will tell you what it is for your area. Um, and it gives you kind of like an estimate and then you can put in the temperature and the humidity, which you can find on your phone weather app. And it will give you a better, like the most accurate wet bulb globe temperature. So this is at uh, www.weather.gov, T-S-A-W-B-G-T. So this is weather.gov for Tulsa, Oklahoma. They have a wet bulb globe temperature and we'll provide the link in the notes. But it's really cool. It's like a map. You can zoom into your specific location so you can get your latitude and your longitude and it pops this little equation out for you. So right now it is 63 degrees outside, but the index says it's 65. I've got a green flag. I can totally compete and do things. Totally green. It's great. The heat index told us I can't even go outside. I need to be super cautious working with my horses. So that's why this is the preferred method for dealing with horses. Not because it lets you compete um, and says it's good when other indexes say it's bad. It's not like an alternative. We don't like the results we're getting. It takes into consideration way more results from cloud cover, wind speed, humidity, dew point. One side note to this is that the National Weather Service Service does not take the black globe temperature. This is not something they regularly take. So this is a prototype. When you go to the website, you'll see prototype under development not to be used operationally. So for like if you are conducting a horse show, you actually need the device itself, the temperature taking device itself. You can't use this chart. And the reason being is it's a prototype because the Weather Service doesn't take black globe temperature, so they're trying to find an alternative uh, way to take that temperature and to get this index without taking the black globe temperature regularly. So this is like they're testing it out to see and compare it over time to uh, other methods of getting the heat index. But it, it's fairly accurate is from what I can tell. Now that we've explained why you can't use the heat index, I just want to talk a little bit about how horses cool themselves and how to identify heat stress in horses uh, before we get on to busting some myths. One of the things that I mentioned is that Arabs are better at cooling themselves. This has to do with they have a thinner coat and a thinner more narrower build and that allows them to shed heat really easily compared to your bigger bulkier horses like warm bloods and draft horses they retain that heat because a lot of that heat is produced internally and they retain it a lot better a lot more efficiently <laughs> they don't efficiently uh shed that heat like an arabian does who that's a much thinner horse so that's something to keep in mind when you're thinking about what type of horse would be most uh, efficient in hot competition and hot weather, thinner bodies versus bigger bodies. And that kind of makes sense when you think about where these horses uh, like originated from and what they're, right, how they developed as breeds. 
draft horses came from colder climates, Arabs came from hotter climates. So that thinner, more narrower horse sheds heat a lot better. So if you need to take your horse to a new environment, like you're getting ready to go to the Olympics, it takes about 10 to 14 days for a horse to acclimate to a new environment, a new climate. I think they're in Germany right now. The Olympic team is what I was seeing. They're in Germany. We still have a little bit of time before the they're, before venting starts at the Olympics. I think they're like the end of the month. Uh, so they're getting ready. But a lot of those horses are coming from the East Coast where they are already living in a very stressful climate. Uh, so they actually don't need to do a ton of acclimating to a new climate because they already we're living in a climate that much matches what it's going to be like at the Olympics. A not fit horse, just your egg average pasture pet, about six months to acclimate to a new environment. So if you guys are moving across the country or moving to a new location, keep that in mind. It takes about <laughs> six months for your horse to adjust to new weather. To cool themselves, they lose about 85% of their temperature through sweating and 15% through respiration and breathing uh, and their digestive system produces a huge amount of heat and that's why that is arabians that are thinner are able to shed that heat a lot easier than horses whose digestive systems are like massively uh protected <laughs> so one of the things that we have been taught is the skin pinch test how many of you have pinched your horse's neck trying to determine if they were dehydrated if they needed a break right we've pinched our horse's neck we've held that tent for 30 seconds a minute to see how quickly it bounces back have you, have you done that before? I actually, yes, I've definitely done it before. And I very much so remember at a, like quiz championships in Kentucky, they like pulled a horse out of the stalls and were like, tell me if this horse is dehydrated or not. And we had to pinch the skin and like time it how long it took to go back flat and determine if the horse is dehydrated or not. So would you be disappointed if I told you that that test is completely inaccurate and can't tell you anything? No, I would totally believe it because I've done it all the time and I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I don't even know if I'm judging it correctly. So I've got a couple different research studies. So one of them is the validity of behavioral measures of heat stress and a skin tent test. That's what it's called uh, for dehydration in working horses. So basically this study, they looked at uh, body temperature of horses, their blood work and the pinch test determine were these horses uh, dehydrated and how accurate was that pinch test? Not accurate at all. Uh, horses that are younger have more elasticity, more elasticity in their skin and their skin is able to bounce back quicker in a younger horse than an older horse. It's going to depend where on the body you're doing it. Yes, we've been told the neck, but like what about other places? Does Why just the neck skin? Why not the haunch skin? because it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so a couple other studies try to determine, you know, the best location. So it's also gonna determine how much wear on the animal you do it, the location, um, left or right side of the animal, as well as how much moisture is already on their coat. Younger animals um, have a shorter skin test. It's always gonna be quicker on a younger animal than on an old animal. And it has does not match the blood test or what's the plasma os osmolality test, which basically is measuring how much electrolytes are in to water are in the blood. And so it, it has no impact. It doesn't mean anything. I did find one study that I thought was really funny. It was a bunch of vets wanted to find a way to make the tent test effective. Like how can we repeat this test and everyone can use it to determining dehydration? The test basically concludes that no one could agree on anything. <laughs> and so we don't have a standard for the tent test because the vets like could not agree how to take the test, how long to do it, where to do it. Like they couldn't decide how to like rank it and under like, <laughs> like they basically just argued the entire experiment. And that's what we don't have. Like it's, that's one of the reasons that there's no standard for the tent test is because the vets doing the experiment couldn't get along. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is really funny. Go figure, because they couldn't, because it doesn't actually work. They couldn't figure out a way to make it work. So we're just arguing on how to make it work their own way. Exactly. That's what happened is they were trying to figure out, well, okay, how do we standardize this? And there's no way to standardize it yeah. if it doesn't work. So I thought that was hilarious. Before I hand it over to you, I just want to go over a couple signs of heat exhaustion and heat stroke in horses because these two behaviors are completely different and can be a little bit confusing. So if your horse is suffering from heat exhaustion, which is like the first step of being too hot, you're going to see rapid breathing, rapid panting. They're going to have an increased heart rate. They're going to have an elevated rectal temperature that's usually 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and they may appear really lethargic or depressed. So you're going to have a really calm, really docile horse that's breathing heavily um, and has an increased heart rate. If your horse has gone on to the next step, which is heat stroke, and they don't always happen in order, a horse can just go to heat stroke with whatever showing heat exhaustion, you're going to have the exact opposite behavior. Your horse is going to become very challenging to manage. They're going to be um, like checked out. They're going to be very aggressive. They may show signs that they're neurological. And I thought this was really interesting because they're not going to be able to see you. They're not going to be able to focus. Like most of the time, they don't even know someone's holding them and are become very dangerous to oh, handle. They may start weird. to rear, strike, run people over. They're going to act really bizarre, really bullish because they are just like melting down mentally. And I think it's really interesting that like, you would think if my horse is this hot and this uncomfortable, they're going to be lazy and docile and, and like collapsing. Right. And that it must be something else going on. These horses are panicking. They are so freaked out by how hot and how like much their body is melting down on them that they become extremely dangerous. So just because your horse, like if you think he's overheating, it's a really hot day and he starts to present these really weird signs, you need to start cooling your horse down immediately. And so I just wanted to like hit that home with people that like it may not look what you what you think it would look like, right? Yeah. But I would not expect a horse that's suffering from heat stroke to become to start rearing and become extremely dangerous. That's not or aggressive. That's not what I would think. So if this is happening and you can't figure out why, start cooling that horse down. Don't like just get that horse cold. And with that, Robin, how do we cool a horse down? I am so glad you asked because that, ladies and gents, is what I have brought to us today to answer is how do we actually cool our horses down? Because while I was reading the FEI document and several other uh, research studies out there and stuff, a lot of them are kind of tailored, especially the older ones are tailored towards the Olympics. It's dealing with horses that are coming off of like really strenuous conditions and like extreme climates that have just like run a really big massive cross-country course or like doing a crazy long endurance course it's pretty extreme situations that they're looking at identifying and a lot of the what fei talks about in their document published in 2018 kind of deals with horses more on the like the extreme side of their nearing heat exhaustion they're nearing like heat exhaustion that will turn into heat stroke and they're like having to cool these horses down really quickly, really fast, and they need to get them cool now. And so I know some people have kind of like disregarded that information because they're like, well, that's not me. That doesn't apply to me. I'm not, most of us here aren't going to the Olympics, right? Most of us are just average normies doing our everyday lives. But there's quite a few myths out there that actually impact our horses and how we cool them down before a ride, after a ride. I know, especially for me, Living in North Carolina, Trin actually exhibits signs of overheating quite regularly because of the humidity and the fact that we grew up together in Washington and then she lived in Arizona for a few years with me and then moved to North Carolina. And while we've been in this climate now for a few years, she still struggles really heavily with how to take the heat in the summertime. These are just good things to know. 
you know, good ways to figure out how to cool your horse down because whether you like it or not, it impacts us all. Absolutely. Without further ado, we'll jump into it. And I know you just cover kind of how to identify signs of like the extremes of heat in horses, but there's also just general overheating for horses. And the one that I have seen Trin um, show quite regularly, especially when it's really humid out, is excessive sweating. And this is horses that are like completely covered in sweat or dripping sweat from their bodies. You know, sometimes we see our horses on a hotter day and they have a little bit of sweat along their like their girth or their chest or the underside of their neck. This is more excessive to the point of like it's their whole neck and shoulders that are sweating or it's like their whole haunches that are sweating. For me, when I see it in Trin, it's mostly like her whole neck and shoulders will just be like absolutely soaked. And that's when I'm like, okay, we got to go hose down, cool down the pony. They also show signs of overheating by the horse being really hot to the touch or ataxia, which is unsteadiness, especially when you stop exercising. If you're out riding your horse on a really hot day or maybe they're just really dehydrated that day and they're overheating for one reason or another and you're breathing them back down to the walk or the halt and they just kind of like stagger, give a few like really unsteady steps, it could be a sign of them overheating as well as them blowing very hard and deep, which would be labored breathing. And of course, this is going to be different than your horse's traditional heavy breathing after like canter sets or cross country. But we all know our individual horses and how they breathe after exercise. This is a very clear, distinct change that like it's labored breathing. They're having a hard time getting air. They're acting funky. There's also the flip side, thankfully, right? We love having devil's advocate here. They could also be overheating if they're showing signs of panting which is fast and shallow breathing. Um, Other signs of which you mentioned overheating is high rectal temperatures, which is like 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And a few other behavioral changes which indicate the horse appearing stressed or having little to no reaction to people and the environment around them. And while it's all great and dandy to identify when our horses are overheating, what's even better is how do we handle this? And FEI, I took this quote directly from them because I really like it because I think I have heard this quite a number of times. I know specifically, and so I participated in 4-H growing up and stuff, and I did a lot of Western gaming. I know all the Western gamers around me always, always said this. They were like, you can't give your horse cold water after a workout because it's going to like shock their system, or you can't use cold water on their bodies because it's going to shock their system. This is a quote directly from FEI in their 2018 document that says, Aggressive cooling is almost certainly the single major factor in reducing heat-related illness in horses in thermally stressful conditions. Aggressive cooling of hot horses does not cause muscle damage and can greatly reduce the risk of collapse and injury or the development of heat-related illnesses. So add water. Add cold water. (laughs) Yes. Do not be afraid to add water. And there's a few different ways that you can go about cooling your horse down. First one that they talk about is shaded areas. Areas with shade are of course going to be more comfortable than keeping your horse in the sun. I think we can all agree to that, right? That's that's a no-brainer. And while this is not an effective cooling technique on its own, it is a way to keep your horse cooler when you're tacking up, untacking them, and doing your regular activities during the day. So like before you go out and exercise, it's an effective way to keep them cooler rather than tacking them up in direct sunlight. And there was a study that definitely confirms this that was published in 2013 called the Physiological, Behavioral, and Serological Responses of Horses to Shaded 
or unshaded pens in a hot, sunny environment. What they did was they evaluated 12 different horses in California, which we all know California is hot. It's more of a dry heat. And it set them up in two groups. Group one had a completely shaded area, while group two had a completely sunny area with no shade. They then evaluated psychological, behavioral, and serological responses. So they measured sweat scores, cortisol levels. They took blood tests. They also measured water intake, bug avoidances, the horses, like how much were they eating? How much movement were they doing? Like they measured all sorts of different things. I'm not sure if anyone is so surprised to hear this, but they discovered horses preferred shade. Those without shade sweated about 50% more than those horses with shade. Those horses in the sun stuck closer to their water tanks. Obviously they were taking in more water. Their cortisol levels were greater in those standing in the sun, but it remained within a normal range of a resting horse and those in the sun had a higher rectal temp. However, they noted there was no difference between horses locomotion, foraging, or bug avoidance. What they ended up concluding at the end of the study was that horses preferred the shade, surprise, surprise, but both groups showed thermoregulatory responses to the summer conditions, which I think confirms the fact that you're in the shade, you still know it's hot outside, but you're in the shade, so it's more pleasant than the sun. However, if you're overheating, just going to stand in the shade isn't really going to do much for you. So I peeked at that study and didn't it, did it talk, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, did it talk about their cortisol levels being lower on the horses that were standing in the shade versus the sun? Yes. So I think that's important. And I just wanted to touch on that because I have a couple like points to add that. So the, and I don't know how big of a difference. And sorry, like I stole that from you. Um, no, go for it. <laughs> They found that the horses that were standing in the shade had lower cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone. So those horses were less stressed than those that were standing in the sun, even though they were both showing right comfort levels or that they were okay in the sun versus the shade. I think this is important because I saw a lot of people on Facebook this uh, during our heat wave in the Pacific Northwest who were saying, my horses are standing in the sun. They seem fine. Do I leave them? Do I move them? What do I do? They see like they chose to be in the sun. You move them to shade. They, yes, horses, they are, you know, autonomous creatures. They can do what they want. But sometimes horses don't always make the best decisions. And the study shows that those horses that were in the shade were more comfortable and less stressed than those horses that were in the sun. And they were both doing the same thing, standing around. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. And then also throughout your rides and things, thinking about how you can use shade. I think this is one issue, like, when you're going cross country schooling, I swear the instructor always stops in the sun or like they're in the shade yeah. and you're in the sun <laughs> yes. and they like talk to you about how you're going to do your next jump and where you're going to go and things you need to improve. Like everybody stand in the shade <laughs> during those lectures on cross country schooling days. Like it's just little changes like that is how you use shade appropriately. No, that was definitely a very good point. But yeah. So when the horses were standing in the shade, their cortisol levels were a little bit lower versus those in the sun. And then other ways to go about cooling down your horse, another kind of effective but ineffective way is fans. Standing horses in front of fans increases heat loss by convection and increases the rate of evaporation of water or sweat. And as we heard earlier, how horses cool is by evaporating that sweat off their bodies. Similar to shades, unless it's like an absolute massive fan, but once again, those are really loud and most of our horses won't stand in front of those. Fans, while they increase comfort for the horse, they're not an effective cooling technique all on their own for hot horses. Same goes as far as like misting fans also fall in line with regular fans. While they might mist water to a certain temperature, they help create a more comfortable environment, but they don't help cool the horse down any quicker really than other options out there. So if your horse is standing in their stall or in their shelter, 
having a fan available to them is more than acceptable because it's going to make the environment they're in more comfortable. But after exercise, staying them in front of the fan to cool them down is not going to be effective. The most effective way of cooling your horse down, and I think we all will be absolutely flabbergasted by this, is the application of cold water. Yep. Go figure. Hosing your horses off, covering them in water, dunking them in a pond or something, most effective way of cooling them down. The document does say the best way is actually to put them in a pool of cold water, but like most of us don't have access to that. So number one, pool. (laughs) Number two, hose. What they conclude in the document is that applying a large volume of cold water all over the horse's body is the most effective way of cooling a horse. FEI states that if we were to look at a scale from 1 to 10 for effective methods of cooling a horse and applying cold water, is a, we look at that as a 10, all the other methods, so the fan, the shade, the misting fans, all those fall somewhere between a 1 and a 3, which is relatively low in effectiveness. They also discussed that there is no advantage to concentrating and applying cold water on a specific area such as large blood vessels or large muscle groups. The effectiveness of this method comes from covering as much of the horse in cold water as possible and not just solely focusing on like the the large veins that we see in the back between the hind legs of the horse. Yeah, that was the myth I fell for for quite a while was that I was like, oh, yeah, you got to get those legs cold because that will move the blood around. Nope, that's not how it works at all. I have that in my myths that I was going to bust, but I 100% all of us in Pony Club growing up, we were taught that is that it's in the manual. It's everywhere. And to this day, like I was hosing off Fletch the other day and I found myself focusing on cold hosing like in between his legs or whatever. And I was like, oh, shoot, that's not how I that's not how you do this. But because yep. like it's drilled into you. No one ever questioned that. Like I probably until like this last year never even questioned that. It makes sense though. Like you're thinking I'm cooling down the blood that's moving around. But you forget that like that blood's only there for such a short period of time. It's going to go to the rest of the skin. If the rest of the skin is still really hot, you're not, you didn't do anything. <laughs> like it will heat right back up. Sure, it makes sense. But it also doesn't make sense at the same time. Because think about it. Like would you rather run a hose over your own wrist for like 10 minutes Or would you rather just, like, hose your entire body off? What's going to make you cooler, quicker, right? Like, I don't know know where we lose our logic between transferring some things from, like, cooling ourselves down to our horses. We're like, oh, it's not equal. But, like, that is. That's a fair comparison, you know? Yeah, sure. There's also in instances where after a heavy cross-country run and you're trying to cool the horse off as quick as possible, where ice water will do this the fastest, but it's actually not the most efficient. If you're trying to cool your horse down after a normal ride, so like our us normies out here after a regular ride, simply using the cold water from a hose is actually going to be a more efficient way and use less water to cool your horse down. It takes more ice water to cool your horse down the same amount, but they get colder quicker because the water is colder. Yeah, because after cross country, you have a bigger drop that you're trying to get the horse to go through. Like your temperature needs to come down probably way more than you your horse after their ride and so using just cold water works for your yeah. horse where they have to get them down to where your horse is and then right like they have that extra drop they need to make yeah exactly so the horses that are going to be coming off the tokyo cross-country course they're going to be trying to get their body temperature down as quick as possible so they're going to be using ice water that's going to be the quickest way they're going to use more water it's not the most efficient but it's going to be the quickest way on top of that There's another method of cooling that um, FBI talks about that I actually thought was really interesting because I was thinking about this earlier. Um, Cooling rugs and cooling blankets. These are soaked in water before being applied to the horse and depend on evaporation of water to cool the horse down. 
So an environment like Arizona, where it's dry, hot, and windy, that type of climate is where one of these will work its best. Whereas a hot, humid climate, so here in North Carolina or Tokyo, is gonna lose its effectiveness as humidity increase, and it's gonna be a lot less effective in a humid environment, which I think is gonna be really interesting to see if any of the riders we're watching in Tokyo mention a new product or a sponsorship that uses one of these kinds of techniques and attributes their horse cooling down because of it, because we know that's going to be ineffective in Tokyo. So I think that's actually going to be really interesting to watch out for. Oh, yeah, it's a good... Yeah, we'll see. I mean, they should know. They've read this pamphlet. <clears throat> and They, they, know what they should. Said. It's not like they're going to use it. Or if they're going to use it, it would probably not be after cross-country. It'd be like after dressage or something uh, or on a cooler day. Yeah, you might see it with all the horses standing in the stall. They put it on to keep the horse cool. You might see it there. Oh, with a fan. Yeah, you could do that with a fan. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see if that pops up anywhere because I... It's just something like take note of, you know? <laughs> Anyways, though, these blankets really should be considered to provide comfort much in the same way as a fan or shade and not an effective cooling technique all on their own. Much in the way of like mesh cooling sheets and fleece coolers don't actually help cool a horse down. They just provide protection from a fly. And in the instance of fleece coolers, they just wick away moisture, especially on a colder day. That's when they're effective. And I actually can go a step further and can totally co corroborate this as having lived in a few vastly different climates with Trin, and I have actually struggled my way through a number of various fly sheets, because when I was living in Arizona, I had a very effective fly sheet that was a cool coat, and it was a simple polyester that helped like block UV rays, but it wasn't a mesh sheet, it was a full like cloth sheet essentially, but it worked really well in that hotter climate with the dry heat and the wind, yet when I moved to North Carolina, I can't use that, that fly sheet on her in the summertime, like Trin overheats like crazy in it, she's absolutely I did, a, I did like a week where I used it and then a week where I didn't use it to see if she sweated more during like the peak temperatures of the day. And she like drastically sweats more with a cloth fly sheet on during the day in the humid climate. Before I wrap up and let everybody go, we're going to talk about a few myths. This is the myth busting part of the episode, if you will. And while I've covered a few myths so far, there are a number still out there to cover. And while I'll probably miss some, these are some of the most popular ones that I have seen, heard, or been told. Where does the ice and the rectum fall on that scale? That was going to be my first one. <laughs> okay, go, 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 go. Because I, wow. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know we needed that clarification, but apparently we did. Um, for anyone wondering, placing ice packs over large, blood, over large blood vessels, such as between the hind legs or on the neck or the jugular, this is an extremely ineffective way for cooling horses. In addition to that, so is sticking ice in their rectum. Don't do that. <laughs> like, that doesn't cool your horse down any faster. <laughs> the fact that the FEI had to publish a don't put ice in the rectum, it, like, blows my mind. <laughs> were, we, were people really out there doing that? Were people really like... Oh, my God. Like, what? Whose horse Those was like... Those poor violated horses. Right? Like, whose horse was like, that's cool, bro. Like, I'm that hot. <laughs> like... <laughs> My horse would be gone. My horse would be so gone and out of there. My horse would never let me catch her again. Oh, no. Yeah, that's like, oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Wow. Yeah, that was like a, oh, okay. I wasn't going to do that, but boy, oh, boy, I didn't know other people were. <laughs> yeah, thanks for telling me not to do that. That makes sense. Another myth out there that we already kind of covered is cold hosing major blood vessels slash arteries to cool the horse down faster. This isn't true. The quickest way to ensure your horse cools down is to hose off their entire 
body. Yeah, don't forget the hindquarters. I think everyone forgets the hindquarters because it doesn't usually sweat, but that is a huge muscle. It produces a lot of heat. You have to hose the hindquarters as well. But don't only focus on the hindquarters. Hose off the horse's body entirely. So like while the hindquarters are a really big muscle, you gotta hose their entire freaking body off. And while the front end you can hose off all day long, you also gotta include the hindquarters in that. Like Whole horse needs to be hosed off. Don't just focus on the big veins and like blood vessels that you see in their legs or along their neck and shoulders. Another myth is hosing with cold water causes shock to the horse's muscles. This is not true. Muscles cool down slowly, even when cold water is applied. And while cold, and I'm talking more along the lines of ice water, cools your horse down quicker, there's actually a less efficient way than just simply using cool water for those of us that aren't on a time constraint. But the use of cold water does not cause muscle damage. It does not induce laminitis. It does not induce shock. It doesn't give heart attacks or prevent the horse from cooling by constricting the skin blood flow. I hadn't heard any of those. I I actually have. I have. Western Games, I'm telling you, they used to tell me this all the time. They're like, don't give your horse cold water either because that's going to shock their system. And like, they also believe that that caused tying up for a while. And I was like, that's not... That's not quite accurate. That's not that's not how that works. Well, in their defense, I think a lot of people probably watch Black Beauty. And yes, it was already cold. <laughs> and then he gave him cold water. And then he didn't put a blanket on him. And that, that was heating, not cooling issues. So if that's where you got your information, was the cold water in Black Beauty. Other issue. That's temperature going the other way. But another myth that this one is common among endurance horses, that this has been passed around quite a bit, is that you should hose your horse off scrape them as in remove the excess water and then rehose them to cool them down quicker this doesn't add anything to the cooling process in fact it may prolong it and continual hosing and leaving the excess water on your horse is gonna be the most beneficial so stop scraping your horse especially in a dire situation that you're trying to cool them down quickly that's just wasting time when you could be applying more cold water instead. Okay, so I remember when we went to California for championships, I was told my horse would boil alive if I did not scrape the water off. That was the next myth. Okay, my horse will not boil alive? No. Okay, so I remember a very distinct instructor in Pony Club growing up that would come and yell at us if we didn't scrape our horses off, like, to her satisfaction. Like, we would sweat scrape them to get the excess water off. And then she would get mad because, like, we didn't do it enough. She was like, they're going to boil alive. The water's going to, like, burn them or cause them to overheat if you leave it on them. And I believe that for, like, a good couple of years. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is not true. Oh, thank God. Very not true. Leaving water on your horse allows for proper conduction and evaporation to occur. The water left within your horse's coat is cooler than your horse. So it's going to do this whole conduction thing where the heat is going to equal out. The water, I don't know if any of you have ever climbed into a lake and then climbed out and dried off in the sun, is going to evaporate. It's not going to stay on the horse's skin and boil them. So the water is going to eventually reach the same temperature. Like, you put cooler water on your horse, it's eventually going to reach the same temperature as what your horse is at as conduction happens and heat is exchanged. And then the water is going to evaporate off slowly, unless it's like 100% humidity. But even in that case, when water isn't evaporating... Sweat also isn't evaporating, so applying cold water to your horse is going to be an effective way of cooling them down. Leaving water on your horse does not insulate them and prevent them from heat loss, nor does it cause them to overheat. It's fine. In fact, scraping the water off is actually going to make them heat back up quicker. 
Leave the excess water on your horse. They will not boil alive. You will not come back out to the pasture to pony stew. I'm so, I'm so glad. I was really worried about that because, um, I like never scrape my horses because it's just an extra step and I, I don't, I'm sorry. I just never did. Like when we were in California, I remember that instructor like yelling at me for it. And I was like, something about this doesn't make sense, but like I'll do it so you don't (laughs) yell at me. But like. This doesn't make sense to me. Like, my horse should be fine if I leave water on him. He's not going to boil alive. Yeah. The last myth I'm going to debunk here is placing wet towels on a horse. Once again, this is an ineffective method of cooling as a cooling rate depends on the temperature of the towels are soaked in and the rate of evaporation. In fact, in a humid climate, wet towels will warm up the horse's skin and in turn reduce heat loss, which is the opposite of what we're going for. So... Applying cold water straight to your horse is going to be more effective than wet towels and probably even cooling blankets, especially if it is a humid climate. Another friendly reminder out there in the heat is don't restrict your horse's access to water. They need as much as they are willing to drink. Research has shown that there is no advantage to providing like cold, cold water, which would be around 10 degrees Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And this may actually result in lower intake. Horses prefer drinking water temperatures around 20 degrees Celsius, which is 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Giving them ice water isn't going to increase their consumption of water, and it's not going to help cool them down even quicker. While it is going inside their body, if it's cold enough to cool them down that quickly inside, the horse is probably like, wow, this is frigid. I am going to drink that. That's probably a good reminder because I think a lot of us, when it got really hot, were constantly like dumping our water buckets to make sure the water was cold and not warm. And... The horses actually probably liked it a little bit, like that medium temperature. They weren't, you didn't need to dump it every couple hours or every hour to keep it cold. No, you didn't. Especially if it's like a bigger water tank that has more water in it. Well, it is going to heat up a little bit throughout the day and the heat is probably not, unless it's reaching like 80 degrees Fahrenheit in that water bucket, it's totally fine for your horses to drink and they're going to drink it completely normally. So that is actually a really good reminder and, you know, just monitor your own horses because, Well, you can apply these general things to our horses. We all know that our special little kids out there, special little four-legged friends, are individuals and have their own habits and tendencies that you know best. So keep an eye out on them if they suddenly start drinking way less water, eating less, acting different. Monitor your kiddos with pink noses because you don't want them to get sunburnt. And just keep an eye out on your horse. You know when their behaviors change. If you need to cool them down, here are good ways to do it. And we'll be linking the whole documents and everything if you want to go through and read it yourselves. But I think it's going to be really interesting watching Tokyo as that is a very humid climate and hot climate according to the WB, the WBGT index, which is the wet globe. And it's definitely going to be a more hazardous climate for horses to compete in than we've seen in a while. For um, the U.S. horses who are based on the East Coast, I think they're going to be just fine. It's going to be some of the other countries like maybe England that don't have, or even like Australia. I don't think Australia is very humid, that have those different right temperatures or different climates. They're not used to the humidity. I don't know. I think, I think Tokyo is going to be way more humid than the East Coast horses are expecting. I think we should all keep our eyes peeled for horses going across that cross-country finish line because I have a sneaking suspicion we'll see quite a few tired ponies trekking across. So it means getting time is probably going to be – the time might be extended so people don't have to go as fast. Um, they may do things like removing jumps that we talked about. They're also probably going to have pretty extensive cooling tents for the horses that are going to have like misting fans and things set up. I know that's usually – 
at some of these larger competitions is areas. So they're not cooling out in the direct sun. They're cooling out in a shaded, cooler area. Sorry, one last thing before you go. I also wanted to say that I know we I just mentioned that applying ice packs to certain parts of the horse's body are not going to help them cool any quicker than anything like it's an ineffective way of helping them cool down. You will see a lot of ice boots of people applying that to the horse's legs to help reduce inflammation after a hard run. But it'll be interesting seeing what brands pop up and like which ones are being pushed to people and like what they're saying and claiming they can do. Yeah, those are, yeah, not to cool the horses down. Those are to reduce inflammation and swelling uh, if the horse got had any injuries or hit themselves while they were running or just like swelling from the like terrain, right, the running and galloping on the terrain. So those are to serve a different purpose. They are not... Uh, to cool the horse down. They might help keep the horse cool, but their goal is to reduce that swelling. So the other thing I wanted to mention that I saw that the FEI document mentions briefly, this was something I had always seen as a kid and never understood because no one explained to me, the alcohol in the water buckets. Like people would use alcohol water buckets to cool the horse down. Not that they would drink it, not for drinking, they would put rubbing alcohol in buckets and then like sponge the horses down. I remember seeing this all the time in the like uh, vet box at the end of the cross country ride. And I never understood why people did this. And that the document touches on it just briefly. But the idea is that the alcohol evaporates at a higher temperature than water does. So when it's really humid out, adding alcohol to a bucket of water to help cool your horse will get that water to evaporate quicker however you just can't add enough alcohol to what like you can't make enough alcohol water for that to be effective so like if you just have a horse that needs a little bit of water like you're done riding and your horse is a little bit warm you can do cold buckets that you've like pre-made for sponging the horse and doing it that way however the sponging is not an effective way of cooling a horse down so i remember seeing that all the time with uh grooms running out there with like two buckets each with alcohol in the water to sponge the horse that's just not effective you need to just get large quantities of water on so I was curious I was always curious what that alcohol was for now I know it evaporate alcohol evaporates at a higher temperature when it's more humid than water but you just can't get enough on the horse to make it efficient weird I don't know if I've ever heard of that but I believe that's something people would do no I'm pretty sure it's in the pony club manual too is it really do pony club taught us some questionable things now that we're doing all this research (laughs) so what we do need to do is not give pony club too hard of a time until we buy their new manuals and read those because all of our information is based off of the manuals from the 90s and all of this research was coming out in the 90s so the manuals were probably already published before this research because i know in pony club you're supposed to like keep your horse walking to cool down he can stop and take a little sip of water and then he has to keep walking that's where the research was when we were in Pony Club. I, fingers crossed, the manuals have been updated and no longer, like, promote those sort of things. Heck, even looking back at the manuals, like, updates to, you know, like, saddle fit and stuff has come such a far away Oh, my gosh, then. that is so true. If you read the saddle fitting in the manuals, it's all about, like, how to make the rider comfortable and that your saddle should be flat. Like, that's it. Like, just the seat's the lowest part and that, like, <laughs> your stirrup should, leather should hang. But, again, that's all the new research. So, if you guys are still using your manuals from the 90s, it would be time to throw them out. <laughs> I would say we could recycle, recycle those puppies or put them, like, hold on to them for, like, comic relief. Um, but those manuals are pretty outdated, the ones that we grew up with and... How we were taught, a lot of that is outdated. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can go ahead and reach out to us on Instagram at inthebarn.pod 
or you can send us an email at inthebarnpod at gmail.com. We'll be back with another episode one day. Who knows when? Remember to stay safe, stay classy, and stay in the saddle. And drench your horse. Yep, drench him in cold water. The whole body. Don't scrape. Just keep drenching in cold water.